I just want to pray uh, before we get into uh, the teaching today, because um, I really believe that God is going to be here by his Holy Spirit, and he's going to be doing stuff in us. He's going to be equipping us um, to, to further what he's doing here, to be on mission together in North London, to establish his kingdom. Um, and as he builds his church, the kingdom will advance, uh, and I'm convinced of it. And I believe that's what we gathered here for today. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll kick off. Lord, I thank you that you are here by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that you are, you are generating a hunger in us for you, Lord, that is second to none. Lord, we, Lord, we desire you so much. Lord, we love you. Lord, we are hungry for your word. Lord, we are hungry um, for your presence amongst us. Lord, we're hungry for your kingdom to break in, Lord, to the lives of neighbours, friends, colleagues, um, university friends, Lord, all those around us, Lord, we are so hungry for you, Lord, and we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word this afternoon, Lord, we pray it would be living and active, Lord, we pray that it would split bone from marrow, Lord, we pray it would divide soul from spirit, Lord, that we would be a people equipped, Lord, and prepared for the mission that you've called us to, and Lord, that you would be here, Lord, and you would be inspiring this time together, in Jesus' name, Amen. Um, Levi Roots uh, is a well-known success story of Dragon's Den, um, a TV show where budding entrepreneurs um, pitch to five multi-millionaire investors, all hoping to hear the the immortal words, um, I'm going to make you an offer. In 2007, Levi claimed to have entered the den with with £20 in his back pocket, and that was it. Um, His business last year was valued at £30 million. In his pitch to the Dragons, he secured 50000 and his business, selling reggae reggae sauce, as some of you may know it, um, literally transformed overnight. He went from selling a sauce at, well, pretty much the Notting Hill Carnival to it being in nearly every major supermarket. You see, you can even now get it on your pizza if you go to Domino's. You can ask for it with reggae reggae sauce. Um, I mean, the business just exploded. It went, it went massive, and it all came from an initial investment. You see, sometimes things happen really quickly and it can come out of the blue and it can take us by surprise, as it might have him. You see, the beginning of the church that we're looking at in this series, Devoted, was a sudden and seemingly one event kicked it off and kicked it into life. And it happened seemingly overnight. So last week we looked at the event of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. um, And this week we're going to begin to look at the results of that single event. Although, unlike Levi Roots' story, we now know that history was building to this point, to the emergence of the church. History was, was, was leading up to this event, and it came at exactly the right time, exactly God-appointed right time. And although the apostles and the Jews might not have known it, God knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly the timescale and exactly the time frame. So what looks like sudden to us, it's not sudden to God. It's part of his plan of history. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts 2, um, Acts is a book in the New Testament. It's a historical account. Um, It comes after the four Gospels. It's about two-thirds of the way through. Um, If you hit Romans, then you've gone too far. Um, And just while you're doing that, while you're turning there, I'm going to fill in a few details that lead up to this passage today. So at the end of the Gospels, which are the four accounts of Jesus' life, um, he's been crucified. Basically, they hung him after a rigged um, trial, and, they, and uh, they hung him on a cross, and he died, and he was buried. Three days he was buried in a tomb, 
um, and then he rose again. He was resurrected to life. Um, and following that, he spends about probably about two to three weeks um, just with his disciples, just talking with them, encouraging them, sharing with them. Um, and then at the end of that, he's, he's taken up into heaven, as we read in Acts 1. You can look at it, the account for yourself. Um, he's taken up into heaven, the Bible says. Um, and, but before he's taken up into heaven, Jesus says to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promised Holy Spirit. And so they wait. And we'll pick it up here in Acts uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish festival, um, 50 days after Passover, arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. You see, this is the promise that Jesus was speaking of. This is what he was talking about when he said, wait in Jerusalem until the promise comes. Um, and so at this point, Peter now stands up and he gives an explanation to the people that have gathered, thinking that these guys are crazy. You know, they're just kind of mocking them. You know, you guys are drunk and you know, it's so early in the morning, what's going on? And so Peter gets up and he explains what's going on. Um, and now we're just going to jump forward a little bit um, to verse 36. Um, and effectively what Peter's done is he's explained and he's, he's explained to them what's going on. He's preached the gospel to them. And then we arrive at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls. So Peter tells them the good news, that Jesus came to forgive them of their sins, and he calls on them to put their trust and their faith in Jesus. And we're told in verse 41 that about 3,000 believed. That's quite a successful um, message uh, to, to, to see. And we can see that all of a sudden, there's a body of people that emerge. There's these 3,000 guys that emerge. And it's the beginnings of the early church. We can think of it like a school. Um, that the Holy Spirit has instigated something and the school's begun. Um, and the, it's, almost like, it's almost like the apostles and now the teachers because they're the ones that were walking and talking with Jesus. And there are 3,000 students ready and eager to learn. And they're all hungry. And so today we're going to be focusing on the next few words in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I hope that this afternoon I'm going to take you on a tour of this school as we look at it in detail, um, founded by the Holy Spirit, and answer just a series of questions that will help unlock this verse for us. I want to ask, what caused th this? What caused the event? What caused this burst of enthusiasm? What caused this devotion to the apostles' teaching? What was that? Um, secondly, what does it mean to be devoted? What did it mean for them to be devoted? And thirdly, what was the apostles' teaching that they were devoting themselves to? What actually is it in essence? And so firstly, 
What caused this burst of enthusiasm, this sudden change? Well, it's bizarre of the surface, on the surface of it to think that all of a sudden people get so excited about something. Um, but I would propose that there was something deeper at work. You see, when you have an encounter with God as these 3,000 had, it's very difficult to remain unchanged. And change comes, whether it's quickly or slowly, change comes. Um, so, for instance, suppose I came in late this afternoon looking as I do, um, and I was, you know, late, and, you know, I gave you the excuse that, well, you know, I left my house on time, and I ran down to the tube, and, you know, I was so excited to get to church, I ran down to the platform waiting for the train, and I was so eager uh, to get onto the train, the truck could hear the train coming, you know, and I went to get on the train, um, but I went too early, stepped over the yellow line, it's very dangerous, you know, the train came out of the tunnel, hit me, I broke my leg in three places, I, you know, dislocated my shoulder, fractured my skull, you know, it was pretty chaos, you know, so I managed to pee myself together and I got here and I'm here now. I'm here now. You'd kind of look at me and think, well, that's a little bit bizarre. And you'd have to think, come to one or two conclusions. Either I was lying um, or I was a little bit crazy uh, and something wasn't quite right. Because, um, you see, it's impossible to have an encounter or get hit by a train like that and remain unchanged. And so my point is this. When you encounter God who is so much bigger, more powerful than a train, it's impossible for you to remain unchanged. Except instead of having injured effects, so having broken legs and stuff like that, actually the effects are positive. So these guys, there was a change that happened and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It was a positive change. So let's look at the difference before and after Um, of a couple of people in the story. So in Acts chapter 2, before and after, let's start with the crowd. This was the crowd. These were the same people that would have been in Jerusalem um, when Jesus was being hung on a cross. And in verse 36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, these guys weren't just casual bystanders, bystanders. These were the Jews that were in Jerusalem. They would have been at the trial shouting, crucify him, crucify him. That would have been what they were doing. And now they were receivers of the word and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Just the transformation. You see, where previously there was unbelief, now there's faith. And where there was outrage at the claims of Jesus, of who he said he was, now there's devotion to his teaching. This devotion is hanging on his every word. What about Peter? Peter, even he had an encounter with God that transformed everything. During the trial leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. And literally, I mean, a few days before he said, you know, I'm willing to die with you. And this guy's like now denying him. What's even worse, he's denying that he knows Jesus to a servant girl. (laughs) You know, it's not even like it's contemporaries. This girl is um, socially under him, and he's, he's, giving in, he's giving in to that. He's denying Christ. And now what happens here? He's preaching to 3,000 people. He's standing up, and he's, he's explaining what's going on. You see, at the end of the gospel, we can see Peter. He goes back to fishing. He's like, well, blow that. I've denied Jesus. I've, it's, it's a waste of time. You know, what's the point? So he goes back to fishing. And here... And here he's preaching the gospel, he's testifying to the resurrection. And he, I mean, he is bold, bold. 
So what was this powerful encounter that changed their lives? Well, they encountered the Holy Spirit. The crowd were convicted. In verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do to be saved? You see, they'd reached crisis point. They were no longer an angry mob at the trial calling for blood. Or they were no longer cynics looking on at the disciples going, oh, you're just drunk, you're just crazy. You see, they were broken men and women. They were ridden with guilt and shame at what they'd done, and they were cut to the heart. Peter, as he encountered the Holy Spirit, preached with such boldness. He was no longer cowering from a servant girl, but was testifying to literally thousands. See, when you have an encounter with God, everything changes. Unbelief turns to faith, fear turns to boldness, and hatred turns to devotion. So let's look at this word that's used, devotion, for a minute. What did it mean for them to be devoted, as we read in verse 42? Devoted means more than just an affection or love towards something. You see, I, I can show love and affection towards my wife, but to be devoted to her... It it speaks of loyalty, it speaks of commitment, it speaks of a giving of myself, of a prioritising of her. See, the result in verse 42 of being devoted to the Apostles' teaching is more than just a casual interest. It's a prioritising of it. It's more than just reading your Bible every day. It's giving yourselves to learning and to study. You see, I think of an engrossing story that Peter might have told, um, maybe of um, a guy who died called Lazarus. Um, And you can just imagine it, these 3,000, well, maybe not 3,000, maybe a smaller crowd, um, just gathered around and were like, you know, tell us, tell us, tell us. And Peter might start, well, of course, Jesus knew him, so he knew the family, and, you know, so it was a very emotional time. Everyone was crying, and, you know, Jesus was adamant. He said, you know, roll away the stone. And the family uh, just can't believe it. You know, this guy's been dead in the tomb for, you know, three, three, four days. Um, he's going to stink. There's no point in getting the, the, the tomb out of the way. And, stuff. and you've got this, this crowd that are just hanging on his every word, just thinking, well, well what happened next? What happened next? And Peter's, Peter's saying, well, they, they rolled away the stone. And, and Jesus stands there and he shouts into the tomb. And he says, Lazarus, come out. Tell us what happened. And then Peter said, Well, this guy all wrapped up in his tomb clothes, he's shuffling out of the tomb, and he came back to life. Four days dead, and he came back to life. And you can imagine as Peter's conveying this, that these guys are just listening intently, and their eyes are wide, their ears are pricked. They're like, Go on, go on. They're hanging on his every word. You see, to be devoted. Would have meant more. Um, would have would have meant that they prioritised the apostles' teaching. They would have held it in high esteem. They would have invested their time and energy in listening to them, in learning from them. These are the guys that have walked and talked and been with Jesus. Yeah, they made their mistakes, but Jesus corrected them. Jesus talked to them, you know. And so they would have hung on their every word. So if that's the case, then we'd do well to try and determine what it actually was that the apostles were teaching. You know, what exactly was it that they were saying? Well, at that point in history, uh, they didn't have uh, the rest of what we call the New Testament, so they wouldn't have uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. 
Um, they didn't have uh, Romans, another book in the Bible, to tell them all about justification by faith. In fact, there weren't any fancy words or complex terms that we now use. Um, there was none of that. And just as the Apostle Paul demonstrates in his preaching to the three, to the three, to the well gathered crowd, all he had was the gospel of Jesus. And I want to tell you today that the gospel of Jesus is all you need. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is all you need. Gospel literally means good news because it is good news. The good news that we are sinners doesn't sound like good news, hey? But we are sinners and we rightly deserve judgment and death. But God loved us and sent Jesus into the world to live the perfect life and to die in our place and to forgive us of our sins. Jesus then rose again, conquering death and poured out his Holy Spirit so that we could be equipped with his power to live for him. That's the good news of Jesus. And like the crowd, we have to make a decision. Many of us in this room have made a decision, but you have to make a decision. You have to continue to make a decision every day to make a decision. Either we reject and we deny that these events are true and actually happened, or we accept the truth of Jesus. And as Peter puts it to the gathered crowd when they ask him, what shall we do to be saved? Peter says, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. I want to say at this point that there is no greater decision that you will have to make whether to accept or reject the truth that Jesus came into the world to die in our place because God loves you and wants you to know him. The Bible says that you must repent of your sin. Repenting is the act of turning away. It's not just a uh, just kind of just ignoring of the truth. Actually, it's, it, it's an active turning away. So you do a 180, you put your faith in Jesus. You say, I'm no longer going to, I'm, I'm going to say I'm sorry for all of that. I feel the guilt and the shame, the conviction of it. And I want to apologize and I want to turn away and I want to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. Peter takes the gospel and applies it to their lives. And that's what the apostles would have done. We see in this, at the end of this sermon, he's applying the gospel to their lives. Repent, repent. That's application of the message of Jesus. You see, the entire New Testament is application of the message of Jesus. So for us to be devoted to the apostles' teaching means to be devoted to the study and faithfulness of biblical truth. To stand on the word of God and believe every word in it. At this point, I want to introduce two words to you. Um, some of you may be familiar with them. Um, they are theology and doctrine. Theology is the study of God. If you're a believer, you have a theology because you know God. You experience him. You have a theology. Doctrine is conclusions that we then draw from our theology. So from our study, from our relationship with God, we draw conclusions and we come to doctrine. The Bible contains so much that actually these, these terms aren't necessarily found in the Bible, um, but it's helpful in our understanding to, to use those terms so that we, because so, the Bible contains so much truth that actually it can get quite confusing at times um, and actually to look through 
Um, and because we don't have the apostles with us, we can't sit at their feet like the 3,000 would have and say, well, tell us what happened. Tell us what Jesus said. And so we have to do some studying for ourselves. We've got to do some legwork. And what the apostles taught has been accurately preserved over centuries, and we can rest assured that to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, what they said is to be devoted to biblical truth. So application. Why were these 3,000 devoted to the apostles' teaching? Why should we, as you know, 20, 20, what are we, 21st century believers, why should we be devoted to the apostles' teaching? I, I think there's two main reasons um, why. Firstly, um, to grow, and secondly, to God. So we are to grow uh, in knowledge and maturity as believers. Um, Hebrews 6 verse 1 encourages us to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. And then it goes on to list a foundation of certain things. So he's saying stop questioning the foundation. The foundation is Jesus. He's saying, stop questioning it. Go on to faith. Go on to maturity. Grow. Be all who God's made you to be. You see, and as the, as the, uh, as the 3,000 sat under the apostles' teaching, they received knowledge. They heard more of what Jesus did, of what he taught and said, and uh, the encounters that he had. And they also matured. How do we know that they matured? How do we know that they matured? Well, we must look at the fruit uh, of it, um, if we're going to know. Firstly, we're actually evidence of their maturity, uh, the fact that we're in this room today, that actually what they were doing, what they were putting into practice, wasn't just a passing phase. It wasn't the latest fad or the latest idea. Actually, it was to establish the church. It was to establish God's people. Secondly, we see believers continuing in the faith. We only need to go a few chapters in the book of Acts and we find a guy called Stephen being stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And Philip preaches to um, a group of people in Samaria and, they get, and people start getting saved. And you know, neither of these guys were apostles. We don't even know if they, they were in the original 3,000 that got saved that would have been with the apostles. But what we do know is that they went on to maturity. They grew in God and they saw things happen. You see, as we are devoted to biblical truth, we too will grow and mature as believers. You see, it's more than just reading your Bible. Many unbelievers read scripture, and some even lecture at it, and yet they fail in one area. They don't apply it to their lives. You see, reading the Bible is more than just good practice. It's taking biblical truth and applying it to your life, which doesn't just happen in 20 minutes before you go to work. It takes all day. It takes all week to live a life centred on Jesus and to grow in maturity and love for him. See, devotion to the apostles' teaching is an ongoing process that affects our life and leads to growth. And secondly, to God. To God, so that as Ephesians 4.14 tells us, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You see, so you're not jumping at the, the latest ideas, but you're discerning. You're learning to discern what's good and what's bad. And does it line up with Scripture? Does it not? They devoted themselves to the apostles, plural, teaching, singular. They have one message, Jesus Christ. Twelve apostles, 
one message. Yeah? So we have one message. Does, 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 does what's coming through, does it resonate with Scripture? Does it resonate with the message of Jesus? 2,000 years on, uh, we can often get our thinking all clogged up um, by different cultural norms. We can't quite relate to how they would have related. We don't quite understand. We weren't used to Jewish customs and things like that. Um, and often we get into really quite bad habits, to be honest. Um, and we need what I call a silic bang moment. Um, if you know what silic bang is, uh, it's a cleaning product um, that you pour down your drain. You pour it down your drain and it foams and bubbles and fizzes and does stuff. Um, and then you wash it down with warm water. Uh, and effectively what it does is it flushes out all the blockages and all the dirt that's got trapped in the pipes. You see, when we devote ourselves to discovering biblical truth, when we devote ourselves to the word of God, it's like silic bang for our minds. And all the bad stuff, all the dirt, all the clogged upness just gets flushed out. And actually it renews our minds. See, when we devote ourselves to studying God's word of biblical truth, we must learn to filter what goes in, what's good and what's bad. You see, many people will use terms that are often in, uh, not in the Bible uh, to try and help them articulate uh, certain things that they mean or um, certain ways of expressing themselves. Um, and we have to discern for ourselves whether, whether these words are necessarily uh, biblical, whether they are true to scripture, whether they're true to the message of Jesus. Um, let me give you an example um, of one of these words. Um, the term reformed is used to describe a certain stance or view of scripture. Um, it's not found anywhere in the Bible, um, but, it was, but I was at a conference where we, as a family of churches, um, New Frontiers, um, where we, we as a family of churches were referred to as reformed. Um, it was the first time I'd ever heard it used of our, our family of churches. Um, up until now, we've always, we've always, our goal has been to be a biblical church, to be an Acts church, to be as the early church would have been. Um, and to be honest, I'm not even saying that necessarily to call ourselves as reformed is wrong. But, and, you know, and actually, if you go in depth, I think you'll probably find that we are a reformed church in terms of our understanding of scripture, in terms of what we read, and therefore the outcomes. However, these terms, these phrases, they evolve over time, and they change. And they'll come and they'll go. But as soon as reformed moves away from being biblical, we'll forget it. Throw it out. Because there's no point. Because we want to be a biblical church. We want to be a church as scripture tells us we should be. See, I want to share with you a little of my own testimony um, just on this subject. I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I knew quite a lot, to be honest, just by assimilation, just being around a lot of Christians. I just absorbed it. Um, I became quite apathetic as a teenager. I didn't really care. I didn't really understand its necessity in my life. Um, and I remember God convicting me one night um, at university, and I recommitted my life to God. And to be honest, I hadn't read a book since I was 12, and I'd blagged all my English exams. Um, I was, you know, I just didn't like reading, so I didn't. Um, and then I, I remember Tanika, my now wife, uh, at the time, she gave me uh, a little book. And uh, she kind of said in jest, listen, if you can read this, you can read anything. Um, and what she gave me was a 50-page little booklet. Um, and I can remember thinking... Fine, I'll just stick it on the shelf. It took me about a week to actually pick it up um, and read it. And it was, it was only 50 pages. It was, about, it was about so big, 
Um, and it was about the prayer of Jabez. Um, and effectively, uh, the prayer of Jabez is a prayer in the Old Testament um, in a book called 1 Chronicles. Um, and it's a, just a record of somebody's prayer and what they prayed and how God answered their prayer. Um, and effectively, what this book did was just talk you through it um, and then just gave you a little study at the end just on the prayer of Jabez. And I don't really know what happened or how it happened, but from there I got hooked. <laughs> and it was, like, it was like God just sowed a seed of kind of almost, almost studying, almost um, learning his word. And so I just started to, to read the Bible more. I just started to read other books um, that I found more. Um, and it just kind of kept on going, really. Um, and I suppose one, uh, one book, well, a couple of books, really, for me, that really helped me, and were a bit written by a guy called A.W. Tozer. Um, he's not particularly a theologian. Um, he was a church leader in America some 50 years ago, whatever. But what he did was his style of writing just connected with me. And I want to encourage you to find, to find those things, to find those styles that you connect with and just immerse yourself in them. For me, the thing about A.W. Tozer was he would just set off a little bomb in about three or four pages, so it was really easy to read, so it was great. You know, and he'd just set off a little bomb and then just leave me with the legwork to go and find out, well, does it really say that? What, what does it really mean? What does it really... You know, and it was, just, it was just good practice in terms of disciplining myself to learn and to study. And to help you guard against being blown by every wind of doctrine, I also want to recommend a couple of other books. Don't worry, this won't take long. Um, I know you will love reading, um, and you probably actually already have, uh, well, many of these resources anyway. Um, so firstly, I just want to recommend Systematic Theology. Um, I don't think it's necessarily comprehensive, um, but I think it tackles a lot of the mainstream theological issues that you and I are likely to come up against. It's written by a guy called Wayne Grudem. Um, he does very well in presenting different opinions and then letting the reader draw his own conclusion. Um, and he does try and help you steer from major heresy, so don't worry on that front. Um, but he's, I mean, he's just very, very clear, very accessible, very good. Um, it is a volume, it's not a book, it's a big thing. Um, but you dip in and out. There's different subjects and you can, you can use it as a resource, as a tool to, to fuel your study, to fuel your learning. Um, another is John Piper. I would recommend any books or sermons by him. Um, but learn to filter. Um, again, just with Wayne Grudem, learn to filter. Um, learn to filter all these guys. Um, you know, he's very good at making the theology simple and accessible, um, which, I mean, he's a big brain. He's an even bigger brain for making it accessible. Um, thirdly, is a guy called Andrew Wilson, um, who's, who, again, is very good in a very similar vein to Piper. In fact, he's probably more accessible because he's a little bit younger, um, but the less said about that, the better. <laughs> but, um, he's, I mean, he's very good. Although he's younger, um, he's, he's very well advanced in, in thinking and his level of theology is very good um, at that. Um, but I just want to say that above all of these tools, let's be devoted to Scripture. Scripture must be our priority. To grow in, in maturity and guard against deviations from biblical truth. And that's why we've got to read this. That's why we've got to spend time in the Word of God. That's why we've got to spend time invested in reading our Bibles, in grappling with them, in, in, in gleaning what we can, in, in understanding the truth as revealed in different passages and how they connect together and what, what's it really saying on this issue? How do I tackle this in my life? And just as I start to wrap up, I'd like to um, 
to return to what caused this burst of enthusiasm to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? Well, Acts 2 makes it perfectly clear that when people become believers and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, this devotion to the apostles' teaching is an overflow. We often think of academic theology and um, and being filled with the Spirit as kind of separate things, as if they're almost polar opposites. Um, you know, either we're really into the studying and the theology and we're really going for it, and, you know, that's our thing. Or actually, our theology's a little bit liberal and we're, kind of, we're going after the Spirit. We want, you know, the gifts of the Spirit, we want the manifestations of the Spirit, we want this, we want that. You know, and it's kind of like we almost become those two polar opposites. See, it's often... Uh, thought and occasionally been said that you can either be a fool for Christ at this end um, where you kind of throw your theology out and you're going after God and crazy and almost a little bit wacky um, or you can be a theologian on ice so you can be a fool for Christ or a theologian on ice I want to suggest that there's a third way that we can be a theologian for Christ that we can meet somewhere in the middle you see if we're devoted to biblical truth then we must be committed to being filled with the Spirit. And when we're filled with the Spirit, we must be devoted to biblical truth. It's a cycle. The more filled with the Spirit we are, the more devoted to Scripture we are. The more devoted to Scripture we are, the more devoted to being filled with the Spirit we are. And it keeps going. And lastly, I just want to return um, to when I was sharing earlier um, about God's God's love uh, for us. God's love of sending Jesus to come and die for our sins. Um, and if that was you, um, and you just know that as I was sharing about Jesus' mission to come and forgive us our sins um, so that we could be in right relationship with him, and maybe at that time your heart was beating a little bit faster, um, I want to encourage you to do business with God. You need to repent. You need to come to know him. You need to turn from a life of sin and put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And now we're going to um, take up the bread and wine. Um, I'd love it if the band could come up. Um, I want us to use this time uh, as an opportunity to enter into God's presence. Um, let it be a time where we're hungry for God. Let, let it be a time where we live out biblically what we see. Let it be a time where we, where we invest in what God's doing in us. Um, I just wanted to pick up really um, on that word just before we closed, uh, that time of singing beforehand, um, about us being an army and moving forward um, and taking steps forward. Let's get up. Let's go. This is, this is what God's called us to. Um, and I just really... F- I just really felt God say that even in the times of worship, there's equipping. There's equipping that comes. You know, what, the way we sing these songs, the way we gather around biblical truth like this on a Sunday has consequences and effects that last not just over the week, not just over the month, but years. This is a significant time. And God wants to... as, as, as as he equips us, he wants us to be on mission with him. He's called us. And like, like we had in that prophetic word earlier, we're called to be an army. And you don't equip an army until you've got the army. You don't just give a few people a bunch of swords and go, okay, now you're an army. You say, now who's in the army? Okay, now what do you need? And I just feel God would say, for some of you, you just need to, you need to join the army. You've just got to get on mission. You've just got to get to the front line. That, that'll mean different things for different people. I 
I get that. I totally get that. But I just really feel God would say, it's a time of equipping. It's a time of receiving from God what you need to do battle for your life. And so don't, don't neglect these times. Don't neglect moments with God. Don't neglect times with other believers where you're sharpening one another, where you're encouraging one another. And so I'm going to pray. Um, and then we'll take Brendan one. Lord, I thank you that you are steering this ship. Lord, I thank you that you, uh, Lord, you give us all we need. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, we have faith in you because faith comes from you. Lord, because you've given us faith. Lord, I thank you that we love because you first loved us. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you are completely committed to your plan and your purpose here. And Lord, we just, Lord, we just say as a church, Lord, we're hungry for you. Lord, we're hungry to jump on board with what you're doing. Lord, we don't want to step out of line. Lord, we don't want to go too far ahead or too far behind. Lord, we don't want to latch on to the latest idea. Lord, we want to be following you. Lord, we want to be committed, Lord, to what you're doing here. Lord, we pray, would you come? Would you stir up faith within us? Lord, would you stir up hunger within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.